Scripture reading this morning uh, once again comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. If you have a pew Bible, uh, I don't see the page number for that in the bulletin, but there are Bibles uh, that are laid out in the chairs in front of you. Please turn to the appropriate page as we give attention to God's Word. Matthew, chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The Word of our God stand forever. Our text this morning, uh, coming off of three weeks of not preaching, this is almost like smelling salts. Like, okay, wake up, deal with something really difficult. Jim, why did you do this to yourself? This is a, a hard topic, an increasingly difficult topic to discuss uh, as it becomes more and more relevant uh, to us. Uh, growing up, for the most part, I remember... Um, we talked about persecution. We talked about other people uh, in other countries. And we still do that. And we still need to do that. Uh, but we can also talk about it here locally in many ways too. He's about to mention, that is Jesus, being salt uh, and light. Uh, he's going to deal with marriage, divorce, anger, uh, retaliation as he continues the Sermon on the Mount. And, and dealing with any one of those issues not simply then, but today, will get us persecuted on how we answer some of those questions that are very relevant. And this is how he finishes these short little beatitudes on a very serious note. I wonder if I or we qualify for persecution. Now, I agree that political activism uh, should not be in the pulpit. But sometimes specific political issues happen to cross over with something that the Bible says or deals with directly. We can't avoid the persecution for forever. If we discuss, as the Bible discusses, issues, your, your blood pressure is going to raise a little bit. Just be, be mindful if we discussed anything regarding race, human sexuality, abortion, views of the Sabbath, views of the family, views of how to get to heaven and Jesus being the only way, the reality of the existence of an eternal hell and punishment for those who do not worship Jesus, if you think about those things uh, in some of our families, extended families, in some of our workplaces, uh, at Kroger, with anyone, w would we qualify for persecution? Now you may say, well, it depends on maybe how I say it or what I say. But no longer do we just simply look across the oceans think about prayer for persecution. 
But how I would answer most of those questions, I would probably have people on both sides of spectrums in our country call me violent or hateful or anti-woman or anti-a certain race. Those are very serious accusations. But Jesus takes this very seriously, and he finishes Beatitudes right here. The outline is the same. What kind of character is this Beatitude calling us to cultivate? What promise does he give us, his disciples, in the midst of this? But then what's our call as we go out into the world? Uh, Firstly, the character that we're called to cultivate, we have to ask a question, but what is he talking about with regards to persecution? Uh, The word persecute can be defined as uh, to make, to run or flee, put to flight or drive away. You could see chapters uh, 10 and 23 also in Matthew's gospel of, of exemplifications of that. It can mean to harass or to give trouble to. You can think Think of Saul uh, in the early church, hunting down the Christians, putting them into prison, and stoning Stephen. And part of what's being asked here is a willingness to be persecuted and reviled for the sake of Christ, and to not give in. And verse 11 is clear that the persecution is a reviling. It can be verbal. And it's also all based on falsehood. Well, I'm not actually being violent. I'm not actually being anti that person or that person or that person, even though I'm accused of such. But that's what they all say. That's what the culture will say. But it's falsehood. We will be mischaracterized and maligned, and we have to be willing to endure this and accept it as a reality of bearing our cross. Jesus is saying, this is going to happen. Don't try to avoid it. Don't pray for it to be on your doorstep. But it's unavoidable. Where, where can this type of thing happen? It can, if it's physical and emotional and social and financial, occupational, where, where could this possibly happen? This could occur in families. Um. Matthew 10, 35 through 39, one little phrase, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Now, obviously, the Bible is very pro-family, very pro-family. That's why we believe in covenant baptism. I'll get to that at the end. But the truth of the gospel may pastorally make itself known in families Slowly. So much so that Paul says to the session in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 7, one parent who's a believer makes the, makes the children of that household holy or set apart, knowing that in many ways the conversion didn't happen to both parents. But the gospel may set things awry relationally in a house. It could happen in the church. First uh, Corinthians fourteen twenty four through twenty five, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship and declare, 
that God is really among you. Part of what Paul is saying again to the, the Corinthian uh, pastor, whoever's there or in those sets of churches, is that by preaching the gospel, people should be convicted of sin. And in a conversation with Christ Presbyterian's Pastor Logan, he said, sinners should be welcomed in church, but not comfortable. It goes for all of us, but, but especially for people who will call sin, sin, as the Bible says it, not as the culture says it. We can think also of God's people, particularly through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called by God to call out the sin of God's own people. What happened to him? He was beaten and put into stocks by Pashur, an Israelite priest. Chapter 20. That happened again in chapter 37. Beaten and put into prison by other professing believers. His life was threatened. We could think of what I often think of as pastors who work in Asia all different countries in Asia. Uh, I nearly went to Asia to work as a semi-covert Christian through MTW. Couldn't say what country I may have gone to. Couldn't use my last name. We could think of a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, killed in a concentration camp. We could think of the Scottish Covenanters in the 16th century, whose prisons I have seen, whose places of bloodshed I have been to, killed by Catholics. We can think of uh, people who used to serve in the old Southern Presbyterian denomination. One of my professors who's now retired at Covenant Seminary uh, was kicked out of the PCUS in 1972 because he believed in the Apostles' Creed. Much of that would happen today still too. This happens everywhere. It can happen anywhere. It takes all different forms. But the next question with regards to how are we going to cultivate the character to deal with any of this is why are we persecuted and reviled? Well, it says we are to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, which is a, a huge caveat. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson mentions this. Um, he means... he. Ferguson takes Jesus to mean that we live with integrity, whether at home, in the workplace, or even at play. But such integrity challenges the moral indifference of the world, not least in our own age. Not to do the things everybody does stirs the world's sleepy conscience. More than that, it irritates it and causes annoyance and even anger. Which again, gets back to where would this happen? Ferguson mentions, number one, this is for righteousness sake, because we're living with integrity based on God's word. That can happen at home. That can happen in the workplace. It can happen at the baseball field in Hernando, based on who's winning or losing. But it's for righteousness sake. Jesus is saying that we are persecuted and reviled because we call out sin. 
because the world does not live by righteousness. We call out sin. Persecution does not exist generally with regards to the category of suffering. Everybody suffers. This is suffering because you believe in Jesus. And you refrain from sin as much as you can. You repent. And because you call certain things sin, you are persecuted. But notice this is not because of us mistreating people. It's for righteousness' sake, not because we belong to the group Jerks for Jesus. That's not a good group. However, our culture today and in Jesus' day will say, you are a jerk if you say anything that's truthful. First Peter 3, Peter knew this very well. He spoke a lot about suffering. Church history will tell us that he was martyred himself as most of Jesus' followers were. 1 Peter 3 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Elementary school kids, middle school kids, high school kids, college students, young adults, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect, even all of us adults in the workplace. Peter's following along with what he heard on the Sermon on the Mount, that of course I have to speak truth. That is loving. It's loving to speak the truth of Christ. But the manner cannot be Christ-like. And so the character cultivated is the awareness of the inevitability of persecution. Of all different kinds. The willingness to suffer it. Because of righteousness' sake and living the commandments of Christ. Not because we mistreat people with how we speak or how we treat them, even our opponents. So the question before us then is, why am I possibly not willing to be persecuted? Why, why am I not willing to suffer? Why am I not willing to take a stand? Maybe when there needs to be something corrected in conversation. We think we're going to lose something. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We might lose friends if we call someone else out when we're at play, witnessing sports. We say, well, I'm not going to talk to children that way. I don't want you to talk to my children that way. I don't think the end-all, be-all is whether or not we win this game. We, we may not get invited to that person's house. Well, I'm going to take a stand on being this way or that way based on race, based on the Bible, or human sexuality based on the Bible, which means I'll lose my job. And while I recognize that 
many centuries prior and even now, it will probably be people like me who get attacked publicly based on something I say, based on maybe even just reading a particular passage of Scripture. It's, it's many of you who work in the workplace in a way that I do not. And so we have to pray for each other in that regard. What's the promise? As we, were, as we were discussing this last night as a family, the question was almost, blessed are those who are persecuted? That didn't even make sense. How can those two go together? Jesus continues by saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you'll remember, verse 3, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He continues this theme, but I think that it takes a particular nuance with regards to persecution. When we talk about kingship, when we are persecuted, I think we could be tempted to ask two questions. Who is in charge? And does he still love me? Because this isn't right. If I follow him, shouldn't everything go well for me right now? Of course, we talk about general suffering and cancer and death. But why on earth would I be persecuted because I follow him? Isn't, shouldn't the opposite be true? Shouldn't everything go better for me? Shouldn't I be in constant comfort because I believe in him? God is always in control and in charge, and He always will be. Psalm 2, a royal psalm, is very helpful. Right out the gate in the hymnal of the Old Testament, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So in the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, as we've said, week on and week off, we have this kingdom now. Jesus is today in control and the King of the universe. He reigns at His Father's right hand. No politician, no government, no corporation can topple his reign. Even from our perspective, if it looks like that's happening. But we have been granted access to his kingdom right now. Following up on Psalm 2, the Psalter will continue in Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes on the cross as he's paying for our sins. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then that psalm continues in verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Jesus can grant access to his kingdom, number one, because he's the true king. But you only get granted access into a righteous kingdom if you're righteous, which is why he quoted from Psalm 22 on the cross. Because 
He was forsaken for the unrighteous that they would become righteousness. How do we become righteous? How do we get access now to this righteous kingdom? His death and resurrection. He reigns through His death and resurrection, which corrects the sin that caused all the persecution and injustice. Peter will say the day of Pentecost, his first sermon, Acts chapter 2, he tells the Jews that they crucified Jesus. And we've already reflected the confession of sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We crucified Him with our sins. Just like Peter could say to Jews who weren't there that same day, you crucified Him. And yet, He's paid the price. He is the only one who should have never been persecuted. But He was. But He was victorious. And He is now. But we recognize that we don't have the fullness of His kingdom yet. We recognize this because there's still sin, suffering, but yes, there's actually still persecution. Even though, the, even though we're members of a different kingdom, now, members of the church, the full reign is not here yet. But Jesus has promised in the book of Revelation that He's coming back. He is just. He is holy. He will right every wrong. He's already paid for our sin. But those who are against Him will then pay. Revelation 3, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Again, in the book of Revelation, you have this kingly language to say, this is the real king. This is the one who's in ultimate control. Even though his people may be mistreated, isolated, or martyred in this life, there's something that we've not yet seen that is coming. The reunification of soul and body. The resurrection of the dead. And there will be a life everlasting as the Apostles' Creed states, because of His love for us. We've mentioned this often, Matthew 26. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, where there will be no sin, no suffering, no persecution, no injustice of any kind. That's eternity. Hebrews 11 also gives us a great picture of the past, but also of the future. It talks greatly about our Christian forefathers and the faith, Hebrews chapter 11. But then in verses 36 through 40, it mentions a physical persecution, martyrdom, social isolation, poverty, uh, economic impacts. But then it says this, And all of these, uh, though commended through their faith, uh, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All of the people that, that died before us in Christ, 
died by faith, knowing that there was something that they've been promised that's coming in the future. And so it will be for us. A body that will not be persecuted. Relationships that will not be tormented and ruptured for the sake of the cross. For eternity. Jesus will return and bring His full reign of justice, of peace for those who now suffer for a little while. Then what is our call? Ironically, it finishes by saying in verse 12, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. This, the mention of the great reward in heaven, I've already kind of alluded to it. Surely that, that chiefly is what we've just described, that, that Jesus is coming back, that there is an eternity that's awaiting us, that we will be reunified with bodies that, that are glorified. What exactly like, I don't know, but no sin, no suffering, no persecution. The reward is something that we can hardly even imagine. There will be no sin. The rejoicing is wrapped up in the fact that His kingly reign is as inevitable as the persecution we suffer now. Persecution could sometimes protect us, we can rejoice about, for maybe the wrong people. Well, I've, I've taken a stand based on Scripture, based on this social political issue, or whatever it is. But therefore, I'm not invited to the party. I'm going to sit alone by myself for a bit on a Friday night. Maybe that's a blessing to you that, that you're not with certain people. Maybe it keeps us from the wrong jobs or takes away some of our harmful idols. Maybe I didn't get the raise, so I don't have as much money to spend on myself. I'm not tempted anymore because I was fired. He continues in Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44, pray for those who persecute you. If you've received something that you cannot lose because you did not earn it, then if someone takes something away from you in this life, pity them who have, who have lost eternity. Easier said than done. But Jesus says, actually, I love you so much I've died for you. If you are persecuted for my name's sake, you are so blessed that you can actually pray for the people who hate you without having to have the need to retaliate over everything that they say against you or the reputation they've ruined. You can actually pray for them. Evangelism can happen because for them, all that they have is whatever they see. But finally, the call of rejoicing is because we have communion with Him. Persecution pushes us to show what we truly love and care about, and we have communion with Him. We've already recognized that they persecuted Jesus. He mentions at the very end in verse 12, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Jesus will say in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's good company to keep. If the world hates me for righteousness sake, well, it hated the second person of the Trinity. Whose side do I want to be on? He continues in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you, have, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Through his resurrection, he's overcome sin and death. He's coming back. He will reign justly. I've overcome the world, but now you will inevitably have trials and tribulations. One area that I think this is very practical is raising covenant children. Christian Smith is a, a Christian sociologist. He just wrote a new book on handing down the faith. He makes this startling statement. Some readers might be surprised to know that the single most powerful causal influence on the religious lives of American teenagers and young adults is the religious lives of their parents. Not their peers, not the media, not their youth group leaders or clergy, not their religious school teachers. I was reflecting on that, and Christian Smith says that this research shows that that does not wane during the teenage years or in young adulthood. The impact of the religious life of the parent is almost everything. What are we teaching our kids about what it means to be a Christian and persecution? Uh, Brian Chappell, stated clerk of our denomination, uh, in his opening address at General Assembly, quoted stats, and he said, two-thirds of the children of evangelicals who go off to college won't attend church any longer. Two-thirds. Then he said, 90% of evangelical children will remain in church after high school when prayer and faith are consistent, consistently expressed in the home. They're being persecuted now at the ages of 8, 12, and 18. We're, as adults, being persecuted now based on what we believe. We have to take this seriously and speak about the cultural idols and issues of our day as moms and dads, as grandparents, as those who are co-parenting in this congregation covenantally with nursery ministry, children's ministry, and youth ministry. Because Jesus says, you're going to have persecution if you belong to me. But he also again says, I've overcome the world. That's what we need in our hearts. And that's what the next generation needs in their hearts. I finish with these words from Paul to Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. All Scripture is breathed out by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let us pray together. Lord Christ, we come soberly in prayer, knowing that you have called us to hard things, to take up a cross, to follow you, that it's actually a cross that we're supposed to take up. But what, what a difficult burden that does seem at times. We lose relationships and we lose friendships because of our beliefs on Lord's Day worship, sexuality or race, or whatever the issue is current in our conversation. But you took the ultimate cross for us as you paid for our sins. We trust and cling and stand on your word, knowing that nothing can break the gates of heaven. Christ, then we pray. Amen.